All right. I forgot to put my little ghetto guard on this, so <laughs> I'll try and hold it up so that so don't think I'm strange, you know. I just don't want to blind people in the front row. Oh, actually, I do, but <laughs> open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 11. That's where we find ourselves in our verse by verse study of this amazing prophetic book. We're going to look at the uh, second half of the chapter. That's where we left off. We're in verses 14 through 25. Nicodemus came to see Jesus one evening. Their exchange is recorded, of course, in the Gospel of John. It's among the most uh, famous, publicized exchanges in all the Word of God. Even non-believers have heard of it. John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? After Jesus described being born again, Nicodemus objected, asking How can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? I've often wondered at that response. It almost, I know it's not, but it almost sounds like the Lord was talking down to Nicodemus. That's the way it can be read. Certainly that's not the case. As the teacher of Israel, the Lord was astonished that Nicodemus didn't understand him because he would have assumed that he was very familiar with the Scriptures. And this idea of being born again was not a new idea. It was an old idea. It was a very old idea. It was Ezekiel old, we might say, because it's found in verse 19 of our text tonight where Ezekiel says, quoting the Lord, then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them. And take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And so here is where God promised his people that he would one day put a new spirit within them. They would have a heart of flesh. It is the new birth being promised. Now, I don't fault Nicodemus. I don't think I've ever totally put this together before. And I have the benefit of already being born again. It's just interesting to realize that Every page of Scripture tells the same story of redemption. Jesus is on every page. And there are all these amazing connections. Uh, and if you're patient and you think, okay, gee, why does Jesus, why does he almost rebuke Nicodemus? It sounds like Nicodemus should have known that you could be born again, that you would be born again. And then you begin a search for that and you find it here in this Beautiful passage, a place where you wouldn't, you know, where normally we're reading Ezekiel for the prophecy and we have all these questions about the tabernacle at the end and the temple. Are there really going to be animal sacrifice in the millennium and that kind of thing? And we miss these beautiful nuggets along the way where God says, hey, I'm going to put a brand new spirit in my people. I'm going to cause them really to be new creatures with a new heart. And uh, all through the Bible, these themes continue to run and come together In Jesus Christ. Now, the second half of chapter 11 answers Ezekiel's question from verse 13, where he said, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? 
No, he would not. What follows is the first real promise of restoration in this book, and it's a doozy. It says in verse 14, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, now, I actually paused on this word again as I was studying today. Ezekiel simply meant that the Lord gave him additional information, but it reminded me of how precious is the word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. How many times every day, if we remain spiritually sensitive, could we say, again, the word of the Lord came to me? God giving me perspective on something. God sharing his heart with me. God showing me an opportunity. Uh, We could go on and on talking about the kinds of things that the Lord wants to communicate to us again and again and again and again. We have the blessed privilege of saying, again, the word of the Lord came to me. Wow, I was, I was sitting there and all of a sudden I, I had this prompting to pray for someone or to go talk to someone or to open my Bible to a passage or whatever it might be. Again and again and again. What a beautiful relationship we share with the Lord. And so, again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, verse 15, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. Now, the Lord makes a really clear dividing line here between the inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, and we'll talk about them in just a second, and the exiles that uh, Ezekiel was with and representing, the exiles there in Babylon. Now, the inhabitants of Jerusalem thought themselves superior to the Jews who had been taken away captive. They acted like they were better off that those carried away were gone. They thought themselves superior because, after all, they were in Jerusalem, the temple was in Jerusalem, God's presence was in Jerusalem. So I guess if they got left in Jerusalem, their idea was that they were the superior ones. All I can say to that is, wow, uh, what a lot of arrogance that is because we've read about these guys in the last couple of chapters. And we know from the book of Daniel that when the Babylonians came, and they uh, took folks from Jerusalem, it was Nebuchadnezzar's plan to take the best people from Jerusalem. Uh, Guys like Daniel and his three friends. And so when they came and they took captives and exiles, they took the best and they left the worst. And yet to comfort themselves, uh, those who remained claimed superiority because they were in proximity to the temple where the Lord's glory was physically present. It's amazing how much spiritual pride you can muster in the energy of the flesh. It's just astonishing to me when I see it in my own life, when I see it in Scripture, and um, sadly when we see it in each other's lives sometimes. If someone I am having a problem with gets sick, well, then it's God getting his or her attention. If I get sick... It's the Lord sending a trial my way because of my incredible faith. And He's honing me and moving me and, and just, you know, working in my life and those kinds of things. And, and really, I mean, you know, uh, we need to start looking at facts and not feelings. We, whether you're more emotional or more, you know, reasonable or however, wherever you put yourself, however you describe your personality, we need to be more analytical about things. The Jews remaining in Jerusalem were continuing in idolatry and rebellion. Their physical proximity to the temple had really nothing to do with their spirituality. And so they were, hey, we're, 
look, we stayed in Jerusalem. The presence of the Lord is here. Uh, doesn't matter, I guess, that we're worshiping idols, that we're constructing idols in the temple itself, that we're running off into the high places and all that. We're, we're the spiritual ones. Uh, because these have been taken off. And, and this is an important thing we'll see at the end. It's very important that we have a proper perspective on spiritual issues. Otherwise, you're going to get beat up and wiped out. Because as a Christian, if, if you're walking with the Lord, you're always going to be what Paul called the off-scouring of the world, the backwash of the world. Uh, Paul, when he talked about the apostles, you know, it was unique to the apostles, but I think it has application to us. He says, he says, we're like the stuff you wash off of dishes after they've been sitting out for a while. Now, I took a poll on my Twitter account some time back about when you cook, do you clean as you go or do you clean afterwards? And it was pretty evenly split. I'm a clean as you go kind of guy uh, because I don't like the hardness of things. You know, you know, when you leave stuff and it just gets hard and you can't scrape it off? And, and uh, one time I was trying to scrape, and, and then you resort to using your fingernails, and that's always a bad idea. Do you know how razor sharp scrambled eggs can become when you're trying to scrape them? I thought I was going to die one day. Uh, I, I, anyway, uh, so anyway, so, so Paul says, and what we're talking about is, you know, you have to have the right perspective, because if you're thinking, well, if I have some outward success, if I have some of the world's possessions, if I'm doing well in these areas, yeah, I've got these things going on in my life, but, but look how I'm being blessed. That's the, that's the same thing that you see with the children of Israel here. It's like, well, let's look at some of the outward things. No, God says, no, let's not, and say we didn't. Uh, let's look at the inward man. Who is the spiritual man? Who is the man or woman that is after my heart? That's the person that we ought to emulate. And we as Christians ought to get it. Let's really look at people and say, who is it that we should emulate and follow and, and, and give uh, credibility to? You know, who is really serving the Lord and laying down their life, not based on the outward, but based on what's happening in the heart? Verse 16, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Now, before we can talk about this verse, we need to clean up its translation. Here's how it reads in a different translation. This happens to be the NIV, but there are many other translations that translate it more appropriately. It reads like this. Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. See, there's a big difference in that. Big difference between I shall be a little sanctuary for them and for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them. On the basis of the little sanctuary translation, the Jews in the Middle Ages called synagogues little sanctuaries. But clearly God was not talking about a meeting place at all. He would be their sanctuary while they were scattered in all the countries of the world. What a, what a great promise if you're an exile in Babylon and you know what they're saying about you in Jerusalem. And you kind of feel that way too because this is how you've been raised. You've been raised to think that proximity to the temple in Jerusalem makes you spiritual. And now you're an exile in Babylon and the people who have been left behind, they're 
putting you down. They feel superior to you. And so the Lord, you know, you remember if you've been here for our studies, he's leaving the sanctuary in Jerusalem. His glory is departing. And he says, I'm 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 out of here, but I will be the sanctuary for my scattered people. I'm going to be with my scattered people. It won't matter where they are. They don't really need to be in Jerusalem. There doesn't need to be a temple when you talk about the kind of a relationship that I can have with them. Uh, and, and, and really, your mind and heart opens up to something far greater than being stuck in one geographic location. Yes, Jerusalem is of critical importance in redemptive history. Yes, the temple will again play an important role. Still, God could tabernacle with any willing and obedient heart apart from them being in the land with a functioning temple. And so this is, sometimes you have to kind of as much as possible put yourself into the situation that's being spoken to and think what a tremendous washing of joy would come over you when you heard the word of the Lord, when you finally realized we are in captivity for the long haul, we are here for quite a while. And then when Jerusalem fell and you realized, hey, those people, they were wrong <laughs> because they're, they're all dead or taken you know, away in, into slavery and we're still here in Babylon and the Lord said He would be our sanctuary and so we can still worship Him. Now the promise here for the exiles is that God would tabernacle among them once He left Jerusalem. Not visibly, not in the glory cloud, the Shekinah, as He had in the Holy of Holies, but spiritually to any who were seeking Him anywhere in the world. Verse 17, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Now we see this, we meaning evangelical Christians who take the Bible literally, we see this as having some immediate fulfillment in the time after the Babylonian captivity when Ezra and Nehemiah led the return to the land. But it is a bigger and broader promise that looks beyond that return and it promises the Jews that are still scattered in the world today that in a yet future time they will dwell again in their land at the very heart of God's kingdom on the earth. And so this is a, an immediate promise but it's mostly a millennial promise. God is talking to the exiles and He's saying, you guys, you're going to go back to Jerusalem as I promised. But he's talking about Jews scattered all over the world, which really wasn't the situation at that time. They were only in Babylon. He says, I'm going to gather you from all over and bring you back. And so this is a far-reaching promise. He says he is the sovereign Lord, and therefore we can trust his providence to accomplish everything he has promised and prophesied. He will make it happen. Verse 18, and they will go there. And they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Now, though still looking to the future and talking about the time when, when Israel will be restored and worship will be pure, the Lord's comment here reminded everyone of the truth of the moment there in the 6th century. Those who were remaining in Jerusalem who were talking down about the captives, they could talk all day about how spiritual they were. In fact... They were continuing to worship detestable things and abominations. Uh, and so, I live near the temple, I can still go to the temple, but I'm worshiping idols, and I'm trying to do this strange mixture of the world and, and with my worship. And the Lord says, let's just 
Let's just call things what they are. The spiritual man is the man that's following me. I don't care where he is uh, or, or, or what he's in proximity to. Look at the facts of a matter, as I said earlier, not your feelings. Verse 19, Then I will give them one heart, I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel's promise refers to the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Israel. Before the church age, the Holy Spirit indwelt select individuals. This was generally a temporary enablement for a special task. However, in the future kingdom, the Holy Spirit will indwell all believing Israelites. In the meantime, the church enjoys the spiritual benefit of indwelling that was promised to the Jews. This is indeed the scripture from which Nicodemus ought to have understood the new birth, the spiritual birth, the fact that we would be born again. And so, uh, the way we understand the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, he, would, he could come within an individual, he come upon them, certainly he empowered them for what they had to do, but the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a mystery revealed in the New Testament, the gift of God to the church. We have a unique relationship to God. Uh, and because of the overall doctrine of the Holy Spirit, this is another reason we believe that a genuine believer, a Christian, does not lose their salvation because that would entail the Holy Spirit leaving them. And the promise for the Christian in the New Testament era is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not the temporary or the occasional indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's in me when I'm doing well, but when I sin, he has to leave because he's embarrassed. Uh, you know, or he comes in and out. And so it's just a very important and interesting doctrine, uh, and, and um, it's a tremendous promise that God is making to Israel that he will fulfill to them uh, after the tribulation when Jesus returns. We'll talk about that in a minute. And all Israel, the Bible says, will be saved. And then that it, the initial promise from the Old Testament will finally be fulfilled. Now verse 20 says, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. <clears throat> they shall be my people, I will be their God. First God changes you in verse 19, gives you a new heart, the new birth makes you a new creation. Then and only then can you walk with Him in ways that are pleasing to Him. Only then, because you're in a relationship with Him, can you do the things that are consistent with that relationship. In our Sunday night Caltech, a good question was raised about the law, keeping the law, versus walking in grace. Uh, and, and people say, do we still keep the law? And, and if you want to just talk about the Ten Commandments as the summary of the law. Do we still keep the Ten Commandments? Well, the answer really is yes and no. No, we are not under obligation to keep the law. But as Christians, uh, Jake pointed out that nine of the Ten Commandments are restated for us somewhere in the New Testament. And so therefore we are to walk in them. We are to obey them. The one that isn't, is the commandment to keep the Sabbath. Uh, the, the Sabbath commandment has nothing to do with the church whatsoever. Uh, if you go back in Exodus and read the commandments and the giving of the Sabbath, God goes to great lengths to say, the Sabbath is between me and you, Israel, forever. 
It doesn't say anything about it being for any Gentile or certainly the church, but that's a whole other issue. So how do we approach keeping the law? That still becomes the question. So if we're to keep the law, but we don't really set out to keep the law, how do we understand that? <clears throat> well, I like to look at it this way by way of illustration. You could choose any particular illustration, but I think this one works the best. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Agreed. But how do we keep that law? Do I set out every day trying hard to not commit adultery? Well, if I love my wife, and if I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, and if I love all the lost the way Jesus loves them, I will find myself not committing adultery. I don't have to try to not commit adultery. I just have to love everyone. Because if I'm in love with my wife, in love with my brothers and sisters, and in love with those that Jesus died for, I'm not going to commit adultery because I'm too busy sharing Christ with them, loving them as Christ loves them. And, that, and, so, and that's where the Lord says, you know, we keep the law of love. And so as we walk with the Lord, as we walk in His love, we find that we keep the commandments by uh, kind of you know, necessity as it were, because we're doing this other thing. And so that's how a Christian keeps the law. So do you keep the law? Sure you do. But you don't keep it as an outward a commandment. You keep it as a result of the inward change of life by walking with the Lord. Verse 21, But as for those whose hearts follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I'm going to recompense their deeds on their own heads says the Lord God. Now that sounds bad, and it is. You don't ever want to be recompensed on your head. Uh, it's not good. What happened to that guy over there? He's been recompensed on the head. But anyway, <clears throat> some of you have been recompensed on the head. You know what I'm talking about. It simply means you get what you deserve. The Jews remaining in Jerusalem provide a good example of those who put faith in external rituals. If you read the book of Jeremiah, you're going to see they still went to the temple and they continued in the rituals of the uh, Jewish faith. Uh, even though they were into idolatry. I mean, you and I look at this and we think, how, how could they be such hypocrites? How could they do these things? And, you know, really we just, as Gino said, we need to be looking at ourselves and say, how can I be such a hypocrite and do some of the things I do? Uh, but in the case of the Jews, they, they did. They went to the temple because Jer Jeremiah could stand outside the temple and rebuke them as they were coming in. And that's what he did. He had a rough ministry. Some of these guys, and you're glad you didn't have an Old Testament prophet calling. Uh, you know, so God asks us to do some difficult things sometimes, but not like these guys. You know, standing outside the temple and saying uh, rebukes as they were coming in to worship. Uh, I, I don't know what would happen in today's day and age. Of course, there's free speech, right? You could do that. We should try We should do an experiment some Sunday. <laughs> Not here. We'll go to some other church. And, and, uh, and so they were do, but they did all these other detestable abominations. And legalism always leads to that kind of double standard. You, I, I'm kind of on a campaign the last several weeks against legalism. And we're always against legalism. But, but you know, it's so easy for us as Christians to fall into legalism. This is what you should do, and this is what you shouldn't do. And yes, that's essentially true, but if you start to focus on that, then you start to think, well, I'm so much more spiritual because of what I don't do and what I do. And what's the problem with that is 
Whatever I do is spiritual. Whatever you do is not. And, and, and we all have, because we went through these things, we, we talked about gray areas and liberties in 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, when we were in those passages. And, and you want so bad to tell somebody that what they're doing is not spiritual because you don't have the liberty to do it and you don't think anybody should have the liberty to do it. I was going to do a series. I, got, I was going crazy the other day, you know, like I do in my old age now. And I thought, I'm going to do a series uh, and I'm going to call it Why I Can't Tell You Not to Drink Alcohol. Uh, and, 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 and then, you know, go through this series. Uh, and, and because I hate alcohol, I can't stand it. Uh, I, it's never done any good for anybody at any time unless you're in an old western uh, and you're having a bullet taken out of your shoulder and they, they always gave you a big, stiff drink of whiskey, you know. Uh, and and uh, I, I, I guess, you know, if you don't have any anesthetic, then that's probably good. Uh, and the Old Testament, it talks about those that are really ill taking strong drink, you know. And so maybe you could joke around with people and say, hey, are you, are you really that sick? You know, and so, but anyway, I hate alcohol. And so, but I can't tell you, you can't drink. Because that would be legalism as opposed to grace. I can tell you you can't be drunk because the Bible says that. It says don't be drunk. Uh, and so we're clear on that, although more and more Christians are blurring that distinction as well. But that's another story. And so it's so easy. It's so easy. It, it's like comedians. I don't know if you know this, but comedians, when they're not funny, they start telling dirty jokes. They start doing off-color material because that always gets people kind of either embarrassed or laughing. And I've heard comedians talk, people like Bill Cosby or, or Jerry Seinfeld or some of these guys who don't really do off-color material ever. And they talk about how they, they won't go there because it's really, you know. And, and so sometimes preachers, it's a preacher secret I'll give you right now. When you're not really connecting, you start getting legalistic and you start telling people what they shouldn't be doing. And then the people who aren't doing that, wow, yeah. Wow, I'm so spiritual. And, and then you tell them what they can't do here and they can't do there. And it's just, it's just a lot. And pretty soon, you're not doing a bunch of things, but you have no real heart relationship with God anymore. Because everything is about what you're not doing hey, I'm really spiritual, I don't need to talk to the Lord, I don't need to spend time with the Lord because I'm not doing these things. And it's very, it's very serious. Legalism is a very serious thing. You shouldn't listen to legalistic teaching. It makes you legalistic. Outward ritual cannot help you. Certainly it doesn't save you and it can't help you walk with the Lord. We need to talk about grace and love. If you try to keep the law as a way of salvation, you're going to be judged by it. You're already condemned because you've broken it so many times. There's no hope for you. Verse 22, So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord God of Israel was high above them. Glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. For a while, the glory of the Lord, His physical presence, has been departing the temple and the city. He paused for a while to show His reluctance, but now He's leaving. The mountain on the east side of the city is the Mount of Olives. Thus the glory of the Lord departed from the Mount of Olives. It's more than symbolic that Jesus in His resurrection glory ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives and He will return in His glory at the second coming to the Mount of Olives. It was from the Mount of Olives that Jesus pronounced woe upon Jerusalem and the Jews for rejecting His offer to establish the kingdom. In Jesus, God's glory returned to the earth 
but he was rejected by the Jews, that glory again departed from them, but it will return to them. I ran across an interesting quote by a Jewish rabbi, not a Christian. It reads like this. It's uh, quoting him saying, Rabbi Jonathan said, three years and a half the Shekinah stayed upon the Mount of Olives in the hope that Israel would do penance, but they did none. Uh, Apparently this guy wrote commentary in the second century. Now, what he said isn't biblical and there's no reference to the glory of the Lord being there for three and a half years. I just thought it was interesting because you consider that when Jesus was on the earth, his ministry lasted three and a half years before his glory departed back to heaven. And so I don't know what correlation you can make with that, but sometimes the Jews stumble onto truth that they don't understand. And and they have this rabbi teaching that the glory of the Lord was on the Mount of Olives, you know, for three and a half years. And in a sense, he was, but it was Jesus when he was on the earth ministering to the Jews, renewing God's offer of the kingdom. Meantime, the glory of God now resides in his body on the earth, in us, in the church. It isn't visible physically, although it could manifest itself that way. Stephen, the first martyr, gave visible signs of God's glory in him. We are the spiritual glory who reveal the Lord by walking in grace. And so, I mean, maybe you've had the experience of people saying, hey, you just, you look a little different. I I remember, this was one of the weirdest things. I remember, I'll never forget, I was coming out of St. Bernadine's Hospital. Uh, Must have been, it must have been around the time Mary was born. And um, I ran into an old friend of mine, Rick Lazar, who I had done business with and our fathers knew each other and that. And he hadn't seen me for a while and he says, he didn't recognize me. He goes, Jane, he goes, are you, you look different. What's going on with you? And I said, well, I've been born again, you know, and then he ran away, uh, you know. But uh, it was interesting. You know, he actually thought I looked different. I don't know, you know, maybe I was shining, so, uh, but probably not. But so it is, in a sense, I guess it's possible, but... What we're talking about is that God's glory does reside in the church. And as we minister to folks in grace, they see it. Now, verse 24 and 5. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision uh, by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, Babylon, to those in captivity. And the vision that I had seen went up from me. So I spoke to those in captivity of the things the Lord had shown me. You remember Ezekiel had been carried away from Babylon to Jerusalem. He received this vision. He saw what the Lord was doing. Now he's returned and he shares with the exiles what God had shown him. One commentary noted, and I quote, Ezekiel and people of like mind were at the center of God's will, even though their circumstances made them seem like castaways and a bunch of nobodies. The leaders of Jerusalem, on the other hand, looked to the casual observer as if they had had it made and could expect to enjoy a long and prosperous life in the capital. In reality, they were the castaways. Their days were numbered, And in a few short years, the horrible miseries of siege and bloody defeat predicted in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 would come upon them. Externals tell us nothing. Matthew Henry said, I quote, It is better to be in Babylon under the favor of God than in Jerusalem under His wrath. It's a pretty heavy statement, but it's true. As we approach a new year and our tradition of reviewing and renewing, look below the surface and determine your real heart for God based on what is internal and eternal. Your goals should not be about doing something. They should be about being someone. The doing 
always flows from the being. Our goal should be to discover more about who we already are as Christians, what God has already done for us, uh, not about what we're going to do for God. Or as Gina was saying tonight, you know, how are we going to draw close to God? What can we do together with God? What does God want to do that we can follow along with? Be a man and a woman after God's own heart. Express the new heart God has given you, the new nature you receive when you were born again. I couldn't figure out how to end this study, and so I thought, well, I'll quote Charles Spurgeon. It almost doesn't matter where you quote uh, because it's so profound, but this actually fits in. It's a study that Spurgeon did on this uh, passage about the little sanctuary. The Lord has ways of weaning us from the visible and the tangible, bringing us to live upon the invisible and the real in order to prepare us for that next stage, that better life, that higher place, where we shall really deal with eternal things only. God blows out our candles and makes us find our light in Him to prepare us for that place in which there need be no candle, for the glory of God is their light. And where, strange to tell, they have no temple, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple thereof. The holy leads to the holiest. Living upon God here leads to living with God hereafter. Oh, that God would gradually lift, lift us up above all the outward, above all the visible, and bring us as more and more into the inward and unseen. If you do not know anything about this, ask the Lord to teach you this riddle. And if you do know it, ask Him to keep you to the life and walk of faith, and never may you be tempted to quit it for the way of sight and feeling. Let's pray.